we have two weeks to look at the book of Ezekiel. Um, it's the last large book that we have left in the scriptures as we go through the others. It's one of what is called uh, major prophets. But major and minor are relative terms. Major just means that they're larger books. Minor doesn't mean that they're less important or they have less value. There's just more here in this particular one. And so we have this week and next week to look at this book. And I'm going to tonight try to give you a skipping stone version of what we've got here, a sort of a way to follow the thought and the narrative of this book. And then I'm going to next week dip down into some of the controversial parts of it. There's a lot here that is imagery that's hard to understand. There's a lot here that is, um, Ezekiel is called the, um, by some, the acting prophet. More than anybody else, he uses physical objects in his own body and so forth to look and to demonstrate the message of God. And it served its purpose because people would come and say, what in the world did you mean by that? And so he would have a chance to inform them. Um, so as we look at it tonight, I'm going to just try to give you a quick overview of the whole thing and then touch down the three major sections, which will show you the path through the book. So the title of it is named for its author, Ezekiel. The interesting thing is that this is the only place in the whole of Scripture where this prophet's mentioned. He is a man, as you'll see, who is uh, among the exiles. He is by a canal called the Chebar River in Babylon. And God comes and gives him a vision of himself and begins to part a message upon him. Until that time, as far as we know, Ezekiel had had no kind of office, no kind of calling as a prophet or anything else. So one of the things God had to do that we'll look at a little bit tonight was establish his credentials as a prophet. Some of the things he was saying had to come true to literally make him understood as the, uh, a man of God. His name means strengthened by God. And that word is really something that is true. You'll see God take this priest, he's of a priestly caste, and draw him up by his heels and stand him up straight and pour his power out upon him. He puts his hand upon him to empower him to be able to both understand and to give forth the message that he has for the people. It's a strange book, as I said, because Ezekiel uh, speaks about visions. He gives prophecies. He um, gives parables. He, there are signs, there are symbols, and all those proclaim and dramatize the message that he has. So that's the little bit we know about him. He's the son of Buzzy. I think he's probably related to Ruth. <laughs> Some of you understood that one. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. We don't know anything else about him except he, he's descended from Aaron. Um, Ezekiel 1 1 speaks about the 30th year, and there's a little bit of controversy over that, trying to give you the, uh, the time that the book was written. It may refer to a number of things. Most commentators believe it reversed the 30th year of Ezekiel's life. In the 30th year, somebody of a priestly line who was going to serve as a priest came into their office, and they were able to um, exercise that office. And so it was a significant year for Ezekiel. Um, he was 
um, tasked as a priest, but he's an unemployed priest. There isn't a temple that he's near. He's in Babylon. The temple's still back in Jerusalem. There aren't any sacrifices there by the Chebar River. And so he's an unemployed priest who begins there. His ministry stretched over probably 22 years. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah. There's good reason to understand because some of his prophecies parallel those of Jeremiah. There's good reason to believe that Ezekiel was informed by Jeremiah of the events that were going to take place and some of them in his life. And then he was also a contemporary of Daniel. Jeremiah was a bit older than Ezekiel, at least 20 years. Daniel may have been the same age, although I think he was actually a little bit younger than, uh, than Ezekiel was. Ezekiel was both a priest and a prophet, and because of his priestly background, he was intensely interested in the temple. And so the last part of the book is the rebuilding of the temple. And we're going to look at that as one of those things that um, scholars debate and argue about because some don't believe that there is a place for national Israel in God's plan anymore. Therefore, there is no place for a temple. And yet we have eight chapters that are dedicated to the rebuilding of a, a building that's not supposed to be literal. And so we, we will look at that a little bit. Um, he gives some detailed descriptions of how that temple is to be rebuilt. And it reminds us of 1 Kings chapter 6 when Solomon was given instructions and, uh, for the first temple that was built there. Ezekiel was married. He had a wife. Um, they were among the 10,000 Jews that went into the second batch of captives. They were exiled to um, Babylon. And he lived at a place called Tel Abib. Tel Abib means mound of ears. And you go, what in the world is that? Well, apparently it was a place where they shuck corn, you know, and they left the ears there after they shucked the corn. And so it had built up over the years and things like that. But for our purposes, it's significant because it really could stand for a place of hearing, a place where a man heard from God. It's by the banks of the Chibar River, probably in the southeast of Babylon, which was really a canal. Nebuchadnezzar, had lots of slave labor, and he built these fantastic canals. One of them ran right through the heart of the city of Babylon, which had walls built around it that were tall enough for you to be able to drive two or three chariots abreast on the tops of the walls. It was supposed to be impregnable. Well, those who were attacking the city, the Persians, when they brought it down, went out and diverted that water. Well, you know, um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was having a drunken orgy and dried it up, and the army went down under the gate and entered the city that way and sacked the city in a single night. So it was uh, built to be impregnable, to have a water source. That was a, a way they brought supplies into the city. It was a way that they got their drinking water, and it was a way that they flushed their sewage out of the city. It went downstream to some other poor devil who had to live with it down there. Uh, we don't know how Ezekiel died. We don't even know how long he lived. Nothing is written about that. Rabbinical tradition suggests that he was killed by somebody who didn't like the prophecies he was giving out. So he received his call, the prophecy in chapter 1, verse 2. 
we read there, or chapter yeah, one, two. Now it came about, reading from Ezekiel chapter one, now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar, among the exiles, the heavens were open, and I saw a vision of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. He's given a vision of the fall of Jerusalem, which we'll talk about and what was going to take place there, which ripped the heart out of both captives who were in Babylon and those who were left in, in Israel. The temple, as long as that stood, the walls, as long as they stood, were security and assurance that God was still among his people. When they fell, the people felt like God had completely abandoned them. And that's exactly the feeling that Ezekiel wants to give to them, that God's glory has departed. You have sinned, you have turned your back on him, he has walked away from you, but not forever. And so the last part of the vision, or the last part of the story, is God's return to his people, picking up that remnant and making them into the people of God that we'll see in the book of Revelation. Um, so that's a little bit of that, the background of the author and a date. Um, the more immediate setting, a couple of things are, are necessary for us to understand. Um, what was going on politically? Assyria had been a great power with their capital in Nineveh, and that crumbled about 626 BC, which doesn't mean very much to you or I, but it was the Babylonians who destroyed that and the Medes. The Neo-Babylonian Empire was flexing its muscles under a king called Nebuchadnezzar, who took the throne there. And then Egypt, under Pharaoh Necho II, was determined to take as much land as he could and build up his empire. So he had this, these two large empires vying together. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was an incredible strategist, an incredible uh, general, I guess. And so he met Pharaoh Necho's army in uh, the Battle of Carchemish and devastated them. Uh, historians say not one Egyptian was left alive at the end of that battle. And Egypt, Egypt never rose again as a world power. So Babylon began its conquest of the nations around them. And one of the jewels that they saw was this place called Jerusalem. During the reign of Hezekiah, men before Babylon had ever become a real kingdom had come into the city and, Nebi and uh, Hezekiah had shown them everything he had, all of his riches, the wealth and splendor of the temple and all of the things that God had done to prosper him. And after that had happened, Isaiah had come to him and he said, who were these men and what did they want? And Hezekiah said, oh, they wanted to know about the greatness of our kingdom and our God. And I showed them everything I had. And um, Isaiah made a prediction that that same kingdom would rise to power. They would come in and some of the descendants of Hezekiah would be swept into captivity into the land of Babylon. And that was fulfilled in the person of Daniel, who was of the royal family. 
and so forth. So those are the powers that are around there. And Nebuchadnezzar has laid claim to Jerusalem. He's come in gently. He's taken one of their kings with him to uh, into exile. He's left another one in power. That one rebels against him. He comes in and kills him and puts another one in his place. That one rebels against him. He comes in and destroys the whole place. He said, I don't want one brick left upon another. I don't want this place to ever rise again. And so that's what happened, and that's what was predicted by, by uh, Ezekiel. Any comments or thoughts? Some of you probably know more about this than I do, actually. <laughs> stunning, stunning. Okay, good. <laughs> Religiously, um, King Josiah has been the last good king in Judah. He'd instituted reforms in Judah. He'd destroyed the high places. He'd come in and begun the worship in the temple again. He'd cleansed it completely and set everything back up. But he became proud. He went out before Babylon met um, the forces of Egypt at Carchemish and decided to take on Pharaoh Necho, who was crossing his territory, and Pharaoh Necho killed him. And when he fell, Israel fell back into sin. A series of four kings followed after that, each one worse than the last one, and idol worship was the, the note of the day, even though the religious structure was still in place, as far as people could see from the outside. Um, prophetically, as I said, the people felt as long as the walls remained, as long as the temple remained, as long as all of that was in place, as long as there was still a king descended from David on the throne in Israel, that Israel was invincible. So the Ezekiel and Jeremiah are both prophesying. Ezekiel, Jeremiah is among the people in Israel prophesying this place is going to fall. Ezekiel is among the people who have been exiled, and he's saying that place is going to fall. But the false prophets were countering that and saying it will never fall. God has promised to put his name here forever. This place will always stand. It's invincible. Don't listen to these people. And so they completely negated the message of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel and also that of Daniel, although Daniel didn't really talk about their, their current circumstances. And so that's the state of Israel at this point, incredible idol worship, as we'll see. Um, to understand Ezekiel, then, we need to understand that um, what had gone on there in those ways. <clears throat> okay. Some of the great themes of this book are these. The central theme of Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord. He wants us to understand that he is absolutely sovereign and absolutely holy. And that comes through over and over and over again there. Um, that theme appears at every major break within the book. Once again, the glory of the Lord appears. A vision is given to Ezekiel. He is given instruction in some way, and he goes out and prophesies that and gives it to the people. Each of these reports, repeats of the refrain in the midst of a set of visions, give us uh, a way to, to walk through the book. The book includes graphic descriptions. I mean, some of the foulest language, if you want to look at it that way, is in there as he describes Israel 
as she sought after her lovers. He talks about the northern tribes and the southern tribe and how they were seeking after their lovers, each one of them going after them as a female donkey in heat, sniffing the wind and chasing here and there, everywhere seeking security except in the Lord. Um, Israel, God had a desire to bless Israel. You remember what he talked about with Abraham, how when he came to him in, in Genesis chapter 12, he told him that he would bless him and he would bless the nations through him. Long term, that's a prophecy of, of Jesus Christ coming, but it was always God's intent to bless Israel. And God so blessed Israel that under Solomon, we had the Queen of Sheba come down from Ethiopia. And she came in because she had heard of the splendor of this little country. And she had heard of the riches. And she'd heard of the wisdom of this man. And she came down to see for herself. And do you remember what she exclaimed at the end of her visit? It was even better than I was told. Yeah, the half hadn't been told me. How blessed are your servants that they daily hear your words as you talk in your house. How blessed is your nation that God has appointed you to be the one who oversees it. And so God blessed them, why? For that very reason, to cause the nations to come in. And when they saw the splendor, they saw people invincible in war. They saw people enriched in everything that they did. They saw people intellectually way ahead of any of their neighbors. They would realize that God dwelt in the midst and they'd want to know this God. We also saw that with Naaman the leper. Little servant girl, captive from Israel, sees that he is leprous and she tells him that there's a prophet in Israel. If he'd only go down there. And Naaman comes down and the prophet tells him, go and dip yourself in the, the river seven times, Jordan River. And he goes, oh, aren't the, isn't the river Peshar or whatever it was, you know, so much better and cleaner than that muddy little mess you've got down there? I'm not going to do it. And his servant said, if he asked you to do something great, wouldn't you do it? Why not do something simple? He is healed. And do you remember how he went back to, uh, to Syria? He said, please let me take back a mule load of dirt from here so that I could make myself a place to stand. That when I'm in the temple of Arioch, I will be there with my king, but I'll be standing on holy ground. He became a worshiper because he'd come down and seen all that God had done. And it was God's intent to bless these people. And they had sinned and turned against him, but he had not forgotten that intent. He still intended to bless those who are obedient. Um, there are a lot of picturesque scenes that illustrate spiritual principles, which we'll look at more next week. The theological themes are the holiness and the sovereignty of God. And they're conveyed by frequent contrast of his bright glory against the despicable background of Judah's sins. And closely related that is God's purpose of glorious triumph so that all may know that I am the Lord. I have done these things, son of man, that you may know that I am God and there is no one like me. And that's repeated over and over again. That divine monogram is mentioned 60 times in this book, that you may know that I am God. Another feature is, it tells us a little bit about angels and what their program is, which we'll look at, you know, probably more next week. A further important theme is God holding every individual accountable. 
There is national judgment that takes place, but there's also individual judgment. There's a whole section in there where he tells a scribe, an angelic scribe, go through and mark out those who have mourned over the condition of my people Israel. And he goes through and marks them out. And God selects those out. Some of them died, don't get me wrong. They got killed when Babylon came in there, but they were still marked out as God's people. And it's, so it's a selective type of judgment, but he holds individuals accountable as well as nations. That kind of has some bearing for us. We have a nation that seems to be headed pell-mell down the road to destruction and there's a national guilt that we're incurring, I believe, before the Lord, although we're not Israel. But nonetheless, there's individual fault also. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we get into some of the application. Um, some of the interpretive challenges, there's extensive symbolic language in here. Um, raises questions as to whether certain portions of this writing are to be interpreted literally or not. And this is one of those books that divides liberal scholarship from conservative over this area of literalism. And how do you understand figurative language? Ezekiel is made to lie on his side for over a year. I don't know about you, but my wife was a nurse and she says bed sores galore, you know, <laughs> staying in one position. He was bound with ropes, so he couldn't go out of his house. Now, scholars wonder, was he bound with ropes by people who didn't want him going out and spreading his message? Or was he bound by ropes as a symbol that you will be bound, you will be constrained, you will be hauled off all against your will? Um, we have uh, Ezekiel being snatched by his hair and taken from the river Chebar to the temple in Jerusalem. Did he literally physically go? Was it all a vision? <clears throat> I don't know, you know? And uh, nobody else really does either. Um, how can individual judgment be worked out? Why is it that some of the righteous died along with the unrighteous when the righteous were trying to follow God? Don't we see that in our day to day? Do you know anybody who's a believer who suffers? Yeah, lots of us. Almost all of us have either gone through it ourselves or we've seen other people. God does that for his own purposes. We were visiting Christy today in the hospital, and she's had uh, an operation to remove some tumors and, and things like that. And, you know, she is going to suffer over the next six weeks from all of that. And she goes, why did I have to get a tumor? You know, I'm not even 50 years old and, and all that. She isn't asking that question. But looking at her, you could understand if she did. But she's not asking that question. Instead, she's saying, this is... God's program for me. And though I can't see it, this is God's best for me. And so God's, you know, the, but that has caused people to wonder. Chapter 25, we've got Ezekiel, and he is told his wife is going to die. The delight of his eyes shall be taken with you at a blow, the scripture says. And did God take this wife just so she could be an object lesson? To Israel? It's a question we will probably have to look at in a lot more detail. Um, when did the, these occur and so forth? So that's a little bit of an overview of the, the outline of the book. Do you understand that? Or is that, am I giving you too much detail? Oh, that's good. No. Okay. 
Um, as I said, some of the things we find in the book are hard for us to understand. There are weird, fantastic visions. If you ever read chapter one, and then again you read chapter uh, nine, I believe it is, or chapter 10, you got this angelic form of some kind. We learn in chapter 10 that it's cherubim, and they got wheels on them, but there's a wheel within the wheel. Is that some kind of gyroscope so they can stay on balance? I mean, you know, it's got eyes all in it and everything else. It's figurative language, but it tells us this, if nothing else, because it's a vision of God's throne and these angels underneath it. It tells us God is utterly unlike us at all. We cannot comprehend God. And a vision of his glory leaves us mystified. And Ezekiel over and over again in chapter one and other says, and it was like, it was like, this isn't really exactly how it was, but it was like this, because I don't have any other category to put it in. And he tries to give us a description of God on his throne. Um, there are symbolic actions. Ezekiel was made a hermit, locked in his house. For half of the book, God says, if they want to know about you, what you want to tell them, they want to know about me, they have to come to you. I'm no longer going to let you go out to them. He is stricken dumb. He isn't even able to communicate at times. And he has periodic fits of paralysis. Doctors today would probably label that aphasia, long periods of immobility when he lay in one's position without moving. His lack of any display when his motion, or of emotion when his wife died. He was told, you will not mourn. Groan inwardly, but do not express anything outward. Do not cover your mustache. Do not shave your head. Do not cover your head. Go out as you would go out normally. And so people said, oh, the guy's a psychopath. He has no emotions, you know? So they tried to psychoanalyze him. I, it's not worth repeating, but one guy's a Freudian psychologist and he analyzed this guy and said he had repressed sexual issues and, and all kinds of stuff. And that's where people go and they don't want to say this is God at work for his own reasons, which are explainable. Um, at one point, Ezekiel builds a little model. He puts a brick down in the ground. He makes these little figures out of uh, different things, and he surrounds this brick. And then he puts a metal shield in front of himself. And, uh, you know, he sits there and plays in the dirt with this little toy model and things like that as a symbol of God, you know, laying, letting the armies lay siege and putting a barrier between himself and the people. He won't listen to their pleas anymore. He refuses to because for so long he's warned them and they've ignored him. Um, another point, he packs a bag and then he goes out and digs a hole in the wall and he, and he goes through the wall and he drags his bag out and so forth. And, and because of these things, scholars have named him these. This is just something I got this last week from looking at a number of different places. They said he's pathological, he's schizophrenic, He's probably epileptic and catatonic and psychotic, and above all, he's paranoid, you know, because they can't figure out what's going on with him because they don't understand the, the, uh, under, the scripture. I give you an outline there, and this is, uh, there's some on the back table for those of you who didn't get them. This is out of John MacArthur's study Bible, so it's uh, pretty reliable. 
you can break this book down in a number of ways. There, half of it deals with prior to the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon and all the reasons for that. And then the second half is hope restored as God promises to rebuild his people. Another way to look at it is three sets of visions. And this is where I'm going to go with the rest of our, our time tonight. The first set of visions is found in chapters 1 through 3. These contain a vision of the glory of God coming upon Israel in retributive justice. Ezekiel wants the people to know that the hand of Babylon is really the hand of the Lord God. All that will pass is God's doing. There's a comfort in that for us in this. You and I need to be praying for our nation. We need to be speaking as often as we can of God's love and of his justice, of the fact that mercy can be found in him. But we have to realize he has a purpose for our nation. It says in, um, I forget exactly where, but I think it's the Psalms, it says that God sets the boundaries of a nation the physical limitations, and he sets their times and their duration. Our nation will last as long as God wants it to last. It will fulfill his purpose. And we need to take a long view of that. We don't like a lot of things that are going on, but we need to suck in a deep breath and realize that we are a domino in a world's picture that we can't grasp, and God will use us to fulfill his purpose, both for good and for ill, according to his design and in his time. And we can be assured of that. Personally, we can be assured of the same thing. Um, we have the number of days allotted to us. Now, there's a lot of freedom for us how we're going to live those days out. But God wants us to live them for the glory of him. And we need not fear for our lives, for, for any of those kinds of things. God has promised to provide for us and to do all the things that, that are necessary for our life. Um, I read a story about a guy who was in a concentration camp in um, uh, Albania. And he was a Christian, and it was illegal to be a Christian there. And he was in this concentration camp. And he wondered why God had put him there. He'd been a prominent preacher. He'd preached the gospel. He'd been arrested, put into this camp. He had uh, gotten notice of the commandant of the camp who despised and hated him and wanted to break him. One of the ways they wanted to break him or tried to break him was to assign him to clean out the, uh, the toilets. Ladies, I know you don't like cleaning toilets. I've done it a few times, and I don't like it either. This wasn't a toilet like that. It was a place that dribbled down into a pit. And the only way to clean the pit was to go down in there and muck it out with a bucket. And so you started out with this stuff up to your armpit, and you scooped it out and scooped it out until there was nothing left, and you let him fill it again. But one day, while he was doing that, he was also assigned to clean the place where people put the stuff that went down into the pit. And he found a little sheaf of papers on the uh, shelf there that the men were using to cleanse themselves with. And it was a Bible. And he began to read that Bible, and it encouraged his heart. And he got through all that time. He now lives in America. And he says, God taught me more in that pit than he ever taught me in any other way. And he showed me at the right time when I was at my lowest point that he was there with me. 
He had not forgotten me. So as we look at this story and we see the judgment that's coming upon Israel, it's a gruesome story, but God has a purpose, but there's application for us in our lives too. Thoughts or comments on that? So that's the first set of visions. Um, the second set is found in chapters 8 through 11. There's a secret evil at the heart of the people. It's revealed to Ezekiel as he goes into the temple and has a vision for that. And we see God's glory reluctantly departing the temple and going out. The last glimpse we get is in chapter 11 where he's on the Mount of Olives and he just is about to depart completely that whole area. God's glory written over the temple is the word Ichabod. The glory has departed. But there's another part of this and that's the third set of visions. And that third set is chapters 40 through 48 and it's God's glory coming back again to the temple mount and descending and coming into the temple. And so even as he departs, God leaves hope for the people. So that's kind of where we're going with the book overall. And uh, so uh, let's look a little more closely at that first sequence. Can I get, uh, Gary, would you just read uh, verses one through three for me? I've read two of them, but go ahead and read one through three. Of chapter one. Of chapter one, yeah, please. In the 30th year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chibar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year in the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Chibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Okay, thank you. When we think of captivity for these people, we think of the captivity of the um, Israelites in Egypt, where they were slaves and they were made to make bricks and they were made to, uh, to build the, uh, probably the pyramids and other things like that. The state of the captives in um, Babylon was not like that. We know that Ezekiel was allowed to be married. We know that he had a house because it's mentioned several times. The Jews were taken and put in this place and given plots of land to develop. There had been a, a commandment given through the prophet Jeremiah that they were to go to that land and they were to pray for that land, pray for God's blessing upon it and so forth, and there to prosper. It was God's intent to prosper his people if they were obedient to him. Several of Jeremiah's prophecies were, leave this place, open the gates, bow down or give yourselves over to Nebuchadnezzar. Let him lead you out. It's my intent that this place be deserted for 70 years, but I will bless you as you go, for I will be with you. And that was what God's intent was. It probably comes to fullness in Jeremiah chapter 24, where there's a, a vision of two baskets of figs. And, and uh, God says to him, son of man, what do you see? And he says, two baskets of figs, one basket, very, very good. And one basket, very, very bad. And he said, those represent two groups of people. Those who are going to go out from here to Babylon and there I will bless them because that's my intent for their being obedient. Those who remain, I will not bless. They will die 
rotting, rotting in their in the streets and so forth. And so the group uh, that went to Babylon was really blessed. They were given a lot of freedom and a lot of peace. I'm sure they had to do things for Nebuchadnezzar and for the Babylonians, but you know, it was still not a bad life. They were able to, to have a lot of freedom. Uh, verse 4 speaks about the fact that um, of this judgment that he's beginning to see. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in the midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Israel's enemy, Babylon, was coming down from the north. But what is it that Ezekiel sees in this vision? Does he see the armies of Babylon? No, what does he see, Lori? He sees the creatures with the appearance of men, but they had four, four different faces and, and wings. And right. Oh. Even reading ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what he sees actually is, is God coming. The judgment physically is going to be the armies of Babylon, but it's really God that stands behind the throne. It's God who's bringing this judgment upon the people. That storm wind coming from the north, the great cloud and the fire flashing back and forth, it reminds us of, of all that took place on Mount Sinai when God told the people, get away from the mountain, put up stakes around it. If anything, anybody or anything goes onto the mountain, they will die. And it's in the midst of that that Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments from God. And in the midst of that was a cloud that descended upon the mountain, great lightnings going back and forth, and the sound of God's voice speaking to the people. And so it's a vision that complements that one which, uh, which Moses saw. God's throne in uh, Psalm 48.2 and Isaiah 14.13 uh, is depicted as being in the far reaches of the north, in the midst of the stones of living fire. And this is God coming in judgment. Yes, using Babylon, but it's God that's behind it. And it conveys this attitude of the sovereignty of God. He is sovereignly judging his people, and uh, that is what is happening here. The vision is a vision of glory. Look at verse 28 there. Um, verse 27. Then he noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal. It looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance about him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. I should have cut in a little bit earlier because what what we have is a picture of one like the Son of Man. It's a prefigured picture of Jesus Christ. It's Him who sits on the throne of God in glory, judging the nations and judging His own nation. Um, he is going to come and He's going to deal judgment to this apostate people. The living creatures that are, that are noted in this book. And let's see, let's look. And Ron, would you read uh, verses 4 through 14? Of chapter 2? Of chapter 2, yeah. Or chapter 1. 4 through 14? Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm reading in the King James. That's okay, I don't mind. He said, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire unfold, enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. Also out of the mist thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, 
and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they, had, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another and two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward. Whither the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Okay. We see the same vision repeated again in chapter 10, and there we understand that these are the cherubim. And it's a, a likeness of which we, we struggle to understand, but there are some things that come clear. Um, you know, the, the wings and so forth remind us of Isaiah 6 and the vision there of, of uh, the angelic host that he saw. And, you know, the four faces and the four wings and the hands under their wings, each one of those depicts a different thing. The, what we see here is these animals, and they have no knee joints. They go straight forward. The purposes of God are always direct and unstoppable. Nothing can deter what he's determined to do. Um, they move in four different directions, and that sort of depicts God's omnipresence. He's, he's everywhere at once. He can go anywhere he wants, and, and he's, he's powerful in that. The, wing, the hands under the wings talk about dexterity and, and the ability to do things in a minute fashion. You know, I don't know if any of you have ever contemplated your hand for a little while. This is an amazing thing. You know, it's what it, we're able to do. We can reach into the smallest little places as long as your fat fingers can get in there and grasp something and manipulate it. How many of you have spent time just trying to turn a little tiny screw, you know, to get it into a place? We can do that and no other animal can do it like we can do it. It's an amazing thing. And so it, it, it talks about how God's, everything that God does is minutely done in such a way that it betrays his character and his person that's there. We got these four faces. What is that all about? These four different faces. That's a weird looking little creature, you know, <laughs> as far as we can concern. But remember, Ezekiel's saying it's like that. It isn't that, it's like that. He doesn't know how else to put it. But, you know, people have puzzled over this for year, years, but, um, you know, there, it depicts really the four domains of God's creation in one sense. Um, man being the chief overall. The face of the man speaks of intelligence and the image of God. Um, this is what commentators say. I, you can argue if you want to, but, you know. The lion is really, we call him what? 
the king of beasts. He's, he's sort of the chief of the wild animals. It stands for power and majesty, which is depicted there under the throne. The ox is the chief of the domestic animals. Um, this face represents a patient, enduring service that, that uh, you know, these, uh, these creatures have before God. And the eagle is the chief of the birds, and that represents the sudden swiftness with which judgment comes. I was out fly fishing one day on a lake, and uh, I was in my boat, and I'm casting back and forth. And when you're doing that, you're not paying much attention to anything except what's in front of you. And all of a sudden, I hear this, and this eagle, this bald eagle, came over my shoulder, no more than about 10 feet above me, and I heard the sound of his wings as he was setting them, and he had those big feet out, and he went in there and snatched a fish I didn't even know was there and lifted him up and took off. And he looked back at me and goes, that's how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> he was, that was incredible. And so an eagle coming swiftly and suddenly, you know, I, I can identify with that, you know? So that's, that's what these are supposed to depict, but it identifies um, God coming, and these are underneath the throne. There's an expanse in the rest of this vision, and then one like the Son of Man who is above it, and uh, we, we read a little bit about his description. The Son of Man is, is riding on a chariot of these angels. It's sort of a, a conveyance for him, depicted as, as coming in to do judgment. The wheels that, of the creatures are swift and purposeful in their movement. And that's the omnipresence of God. The eyes of the wheels represent his omniscience. Nothing is hidden from him. I was thinking about this as I was preparing this this week and thinking, you know, God knows not just what I do. He also knows why I do it. He knows my heart that I don't know which is deceitful and wicked above all things, and I can't know it. I can't plumb the depths of it. He knows all my good motives. He knows all my bad motives, and he knows the good motives, that, or the motives I think are good, which are really bad. I mean, he, he knows all of that stuff, and it's just hard to wrap your mind around the omnipotence of God. And he not only knows that about me, but he knows it about each one of us all the time. You know, that's just incredible. So Ezekiel realizes this is a representation of God. And so what we have here in the last part of that, that vision is this, um, verse, let's see, word, 28. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds and rain day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. The purpose of the vision was fulfilled. Before Ezekiel could speak the word of the Lord, he had to understand who the Lord was. He had to have a vision of his glory. He saw a representation of God's holiness, his otherness. He beheld and felt and fully experienced the majesty and power of God. His response was first humility, and then it was worship. And then it was obedience and service. God raises him up, puts his hand upon him in chapter 2, and commissions him to be his prophet. And that's the pattern for life. Before we can serve God effectively in obedience, we have to have a clear vision of who he is. 
That is why in this church, in every venue, we try to center on the Word of God. It's only that that'll give us a picture of God. I, I probably told some of you this before, but when we served in Jordan, there was a church there. It's planted by well-meaning missionaries, brethren missionaries who had gone over, man, that was suffered terribly to take the gospel there. And they had planted a, a church, a, not just a church, but a series of churches in that town. But the Jews have a horrible, or, or the uh, Arabs have a horrible antipathy towards the Jews. They hate the Jews. And when we're in Egypt, um, Egypt is a, lacks prosperity in so many ways, but um, the Israelis that developed a drip system for irrigating, for a desert land where you just run these little tubes to the plants and you ir irrigate them individually and you can control how much water they get. The Egyptians were still using flood irrigating in a land where 50% of it's probably going to evaporate. It never does any good because they've, they've run it out there under the hot sun. And I asked a guy at this place called Fayum, it was a farm when I knew a little bit of Arabic, enough to get in trouble but not to get out of it. And so I asked him, I said, why don't you use a drip system, you know? And I did the wrong thing. I said the, that the Israelis have developed a system where you control the water. He spat on the ground and he said, El Yahud, the Jews, you know? Nothing, I wouldn't use nothing that comes from the Jews. And I tried to tell him that half the pharmaceuticals in your country come from some Jew someplace. You know, I, I didn't tell him that. I didn't know how to say You're still alive. Yeah, I'm still alive. <laughs> but, you know, we, where was I going with that? How did I get out there? What was I talking about before? Help me out here. It was good, though. <laughs> I hope they all race that. <laughs> anyway, he, he, you have to have a humility before there's effective service. We have to seek God in the scriptures. It's the only way we'll get it. That's where I was going. Oh, yeah. The church there was a New Testament church. Because they do not like the Jews, they don't want to know anything about them, they will not use the Old Testament. And because they will not use the Old Testament, their view of God is truncated. They do not understand his wrath. They do not understand his justice. They do not understand his character in that way because there's, they aren't familiar with any of the stories and how that developed even among his own people. And because of that, the church is, is a, a weak church, an immature church, because it doesn't have a full view of God. If you and I are going to broadcast the message of God, we have to be in love with God. The way we get to be in love with God is by pulling out the scriptures, studying and knowing who he is. And if we ask him, he has promised unequivocally to give us wisdom. He's promised to give us insight into who he is. And as we understand that, we will look around and we'll see our neighbors and we'll feel sorry for them because they don't know him. And then we will begin to the message of God out. So Ezekiel had to see a vision of God before he could give that message out. And that's what God does. And in chapter 2 is this commissioning and so forth. We're not going to go through all that. But one of the things I want you to get, what was Ezekiel doing, according to what I told you, when God began to give him this vision? He was out of job as a priest. 
Yeah. He's out along the Chibar Canal. We don't know if he was skipping rocks. We don't know what he was doing, but he didn't have any idea of what he was going to say. God took the initiative. God took the initiative to come to him, the same as he did with Abraham. It was God who appeared to Abraham. It was God who spoke to Abraham. It was God who revealed himself to Abraham. And that is true in everything. God desires relationship, but God wants to do those things. And the way he reveals himself to us today isn't by a vision of him coming out of the north on, on these fantastic creatures. It's here again in his Bible. Have I preached long enough? Okay, good. Um, the second vision, let's move on. Uh, chapters 8 through 11 are really a vision of God. Uh, he upbraids in the, in the chapters in between the, the Jews for what they have done. And this is a vision of God revealing to the prophet why judgment is coming. If we can look at that, I'd really like to read uh, the whole of chapter 8. It's not that long. So if I could do that, let's go here. Joe, would you read just good and loud? Can you read the whole chapter? Sure. If you want to get tired, just yell and Paul take up from you behind you. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man be, uh, had, had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Okay, this uh, vision again repeated from chapter one. We go ahead, Joe, because he's beginning a new thing here. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here? to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loath loathsome be beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Okay, these are the best of Israel and they're in there worshiping in a false way. They've even decorated the walls of the temple itself with these horrible images, and they're bowing down and, and uh, doing their religious ceremony before them in the midst of God's holy house. Um, 
Go ahead, verse 12. Yeah. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. Tammuz was a cult. Uh, they believed in a resurrection theory, is resurrected every year, and, and so the women are particularly attracted to this particular fellow, and I'll do a little more research before we talk about him next week, but anyway, there they're again is an, an outer court. It's an area where it's not the inner court of the temple, but it's in an outer court, and the women, they're openly worshiping Tammuz instead of God. Uh, verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the, cat, toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Okay. This is taking place at the core of the temple, at the core of Israel. And these are the ones who are on the outside still offering sacrifice to God in, uh, with lip service, if you will, but going through the rituals of Israel, but their hearts are not there. Their hearts are actually after these other gods. Um, in our own day, we see this continually. We'll hear different people talk about God and bring him in, particularly political figures. They know that there's an evangelical vote out there, and if they just whisper, well, you know, praise God, then away we go. We vote for him and say, well, he's our man, you know, and they play that up. But their hearts are far from that, according to the deeds that we see. And that's the core of it all. And God's judgment is coming upon them. In chapter 9, we have, uh, let me just read a few verses. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate and that faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen and a writing case at his loins. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. That's the altar of judgment. It's the labor where the priests have to wash their hands to be cleansed before they go in and offer their offerings and, and so forth. Then the, the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins is a writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in the midst. God selectively goes through. He knows those 
who are in pain over what's going on in Israel, those who have listened to the voice of Jeremiah, those who have listened to the other voices, and, and they are weeping over the condition of the people, and he marks them out as his own. God's judgment is never just kill them all. You know, his judgment is to sort through. He knows those who are his, and he's always selective in his judgment. Even his judgment upon us is very carefully done so that we're not judged ultimately for our sins, but we are judged, if you will, by God letting us suffer the consequences of some of our sins. And that's selectively done. Chapters 10 and 11 are really sad. What you have here in chapter 8 is God going through the temple room by room. It's almost like a last look. And in chapters 10 and 11, we get a picture of the glory of God. First of all, the cherubim lift up from the inner part and go to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord joins them there and they step over the threshold and they go to the, the wall in the outer court. And there they linger for a little longer, and then they go outside of the, the temple area, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And where do they finally end up? Does anybody know? They end up on the Mount of Olives. What happened on the Mount of Olives? Jesus ascended from there. Jesus ascended from there. And what did the angel say when the men were standing there watching him ascend? Why are you looking? Yeah, why are you looking? And then he says what, Gary? He's going to come as you saw him leave. Yes. And we read in Revelation that Jesus has come down. Where's his foot going to touch down? On a Mount of Olives. And it's going to split. And all that stuff is going to happen. But he's coming back exactly to the same place. And this is the glory of the Lord departing from the temple from that same place. But there, if you read chapters 10 and 11, you hear the pathos is God is reluctant to do this, to depart from his people. But his people have forsaken him, and he departs from them. And he will not, his glory will not return until chapter 42, 43, verse 2, when the Lord comes back in that last set of visions. And so we have this departure of his glory, and there's a lot of stuff in between that that time that happens. Now, what are we to do, just as a side question, what are we to do with Israel today? Is she in her land? Yeah. <laughs> you kept going, well, maybe. <laughs> you know, I don't know what God's going to do. None of us do exactly. But from my reading of Scripture, I don't see a place where he begins to regather his people and then disperses them again. I see one regathering. Um, this is a regathering, but it's not the final regathering. But there comes a time when God's people are regathered back to the nation. And it's at that time that the prophecies in the last part of this book are fulfilled. When all the nations, in Ezekiel chapter 38 it is, gather around to destroy Israel. And God comes then, and he sends and he destroys all of those armies. And he comes back to this very same place where it is. And chapter 11 ends with that promise. If uh, we can look at verses 14 through 22 or 21 of chapter 11. Paul, would you read that? <clears throat> sure. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, 
Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Okay, let me stop you there. What that is, is those who were remaining in Jerusalem thought they were the ones who were being obedient to the Lord. Those who had gone out and the voluntary, the exile must have been somewhat voluntary, the second one, but they went out with Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin and they went out into, the, into Babylon voluntarily. And uh, these people said, you guys go, we're gonna remain here. We're the ones that God's gonna bless because this is where God is. Okay, Paul 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from all its detestable things and all its abominations and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from, the from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Okay. And here we have uh, a double fulfillment pictured here. There's an initial fulfillment when, when uh, God's going to gather his people together, but there's also the long-term thing when he's going to gather his people together. After 70 years were up, God let them come back in, and we have the rebuilding of a very small temple, and we have the reestablishment of the nation and so forth, but always under the hand of some other nation as they were gathered there. It's not the final fulfillment. But there comes a time when God will gather them from the scattered nations. I believe personally that what we're seeing now in Israel is the beginning of that. The, the, the state has been established, but the state is not um, God's state. These aren't converted people. These aren't the people that have a new heart. That comes at a later time when God, who is sovereign over salvation, who must open the heart, who must implant his spirit within it if salvation is to take place. He does a, a work among the people who are there, and he converts the nation. And, and it says in Revelation, all Israel is converted, and, and so forth. And all that people then follow the Lord fervently. But that hasn't happened yet. They're in the land, but they're not God's people yet. In fact, Israel is a very atheistic state and uh, not at all godly at this point in time. So those are the, uh, the visions of that, but it ends with the destruction of, of the city, but a promise of a return. And the last set of visions are found then in chapters um, 34 through 48. And it's the last great division of prophecy, and the themes are distinct within it. We don't have time to look at it all, but verse 30, chapter 34 emphasizes the rulers of Israel. They're false shepherds. They have not done what God's asked them to do. We'll take a closer look at that in a minute. And so God says that he won't depend upon them anymore. He himself will come and be Israel's shepherd. 
Um, chapter 35 emphasizes the enemies of Israel and God gathered around the nations surrounding them. And there's controversy over that, but it's a controversy that's easily dispelled if you understand the greatness of God. Um, chapter 36 emphasizes the nation's conversion. The Jews all come to faith and they become a solid nation under God. It's really the fulfillment of of Isaiah chapter 53, when they look upon him when they have pierced and they mourn and they grieve and they come to him fully understanding who he is and what he has done. Uh, chapter 37 is Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's dry bones and it's, it emphasizes the nation resurrected. We've talked about this before, but in the history of the world, as far as I know, no nation has been completely pushed off of its land completely um, scattered throughout the nations of the world and maintained its ethnic identity. Um, Mark, who was the last Hittite you spoke to? Well, Bob the Hittite. Bob the Hittite, all right. <laughs> you would know somebody named Bob the Hittite. <laughs> we just don't know any of those peoples. We don't know where they are. They vanished off the face of the earth because their time came and went. But God kept a remnant, and the Jews have always maintained their ethnic identity. When they regathered into Israel in 1948, they had to resurrect their language. They only had the written language. And rabbis used to recite that, but they weren't even sure if the pronunciation was correct and so forth. And from that, they have created a whole language, the Hebrew language, and resurrected it all. And it's phenomenal. No other nation that I know of has ever done that. And so God's going to cause a dry bone to put on flesh. Mm -hmm. And I think that's happening now. But after the flesh is put on, the spirit comes and it becomes alive. It's a dead nation now. It might have flesh, but it's a dead nation. Um, chapters 38 and 39 emphasize the land. And we're going to look at that because it's a controversial thing. I was just um, in Germany with a bunch of Presbyterians, and they don't believe that there is room in God's economy for an ethnic Israel. They don't believe that the Jews who occupy the land have any right to it. As far as they're concerned, the Palestinians were the ones that were there, and they're now occupiers. I suppose they want us to give back Colorado to the Utes, too, but, you know, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but... They, um, they, they don't have a place for the nation of Israel. And they don't see her as, a, as a, a people of the land. But the covenant that God made with Abraham in uh, chapter uh, 15 and in chapter um, 13, he emphasized the land, every place your foot is trod, all the place your eyes can see. This I will give to you and to your descendants forever. And uh, you can't say the church inherits the land. We don't have a land. We don't have any kind of identity like that. But we'll look at those arguments and so forth next week. Chapters 40 through 48 emphasize the sanctuary rebuilt. And um, it's really a picture of God's temple once again in minute detail, which we oftentimes read with a yawn and a, in front of a fan. We go, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I'm glad I got that out of the way. But it's a detail that's important to God because all of it shows I'm going to come back in and I'm, I'm going to inhabit this place again. And it's going to be a regal place sufficient for my majesty. So um, any questions? I've been doing a lot of time. Well, I have a question, but it's not really on topic. Okay. 
with what I'm talking about. Um, all through the book, he calls Ezekiel son of man. God does. Yeah. And I don't remember any other um, prophet being continually called son of man. Is there some significance? Yeah, Jeremiah was also called son of man, and Daniel was called son of man. And um, those are significant because Jesus took on that name. And I think by taking on a name, at least part of what he was doing is not just identifying himself as a man, fully man and fully God, but and identifying himself that way. He was associating himself with these men's prophecies. Hmm. You know, and saying that these, these speak of me. If we had been on that road to Emmaus with the uh, two disciples that were going, I'm sure Jesus would have touched into those places and said, do you see how this points? Do you see how this points? Do you see how this points? And all of it is pointing back to him. He's identifying himself with those different characters. So he called him son of man looking forward to Jesus. Yes, okay. exactly. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's God presciently, you know, foreshadowing the coming of his son. Okay. Um, okay, any other questions or any other comments? Chuck? I was just struck by the, that section about the mark. Uh -huh. He's marking people and uh, their, their Passover notes. And I don't know if anybody else saw that uh, resonating with the Passover. Everybody else was killed. Okay. But I don't know if I'm right or not. Yeah, elaborate a little bit on that. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, it was just that cleansing kind of thing, that uh, purification, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't, you know it's just, just the... The mark on the, the doorpost. The mark on the their forehead. The mark on the doorpost, the mark on the forehead. Uh -huh. uh, don't kill the folks that have the mark. The angel of death passes over the mark on the right. lentils. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it just struck me as very simple. Yeah. I went and, to Revelation. What's that? I went to Revelation. Yeah, and Revelation yeah. has the mark has also. The mark. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, I think, it, you know, to me, it just smacks of election. Yeah. <clears throat> These are mine. I've chosen them, you know. And it's not because they're all great people, you know. I mean, look at us, right? You know, so, but, but God, it smacks of that. And uh, of his preserving. These are mine. I'm, I'm carving them out of there. But anyway, that's, that's what I would think of that. Um, Let's just turn the last thing to chapter 48. I'm going to finish here. In chapter 48, we have um, the prince is established in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. And um, in the last uh, verse, beginning of verse 34, it says... These are the exits of the city on the north side, 4,500 cubits by measurement, shall be the gates of the city named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates towards the north, the gate of Reuben one, the gate of Judah one, the gate of Levi one, and on the east side, 4,500 cubits, shall be three gates. The gate of Joseph one, the gate of Benjamin one, the gate of Dan one. On the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement, shall be three gates, the gate of Simeon one, the gate of Issachar one, the gate of Zebulun one. On the west side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gate of Gad one, the gate of Asher one, the gate of Naphtali one. 
The city shall be 1,800 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day on shall be, The Lord is there. Um, all of this is a prophecy of the fact that of the tribes of Israel, dispersed as they were, they're brought back in. The city depicts all that we'll learn about what those tribes represent and so forth. But the significance of it all is, is God is coming back. God is going to once again dwell on earth among men. He's going to be in the midst. And anybody that wants to know where is God, God is there. His presence is manifest fully in that place. And, and I think it's just fitting that to a people who are going to go through dire judgment, and there's more to come if you read the book of Revelation, the fact is God has never forsaken his people. His purpose has never been diverted. He's fulfilling his purpose now through the church and the church age. There comes a time when he begins again to fulfill his purpose through Israel. And she will stand there forever, this new Jerusalem, marked out in those ways as God's fulfillment of his covenants and his promises and his establishment of his presence among men forever. So I just think that's a fitting thing. So, comments, questions? I'm proud of you. Everyone of you stayed awake. I, I didn't know how, how many dry bones we'd uncover in this thing. So the tour you went on, was that the Looking Here tour? Yeah. Which is probably the R.C. Spall. R.C. Spall, yeah. He wasn't there. Spirit. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I disparage the Presbyterians. They're brothers in Christ. They just don't have the same hope we do of Christ's return. It's, it's a whole different bailiwick. So you can pray for me. I'm, I'm uh, sometimes shoot quickly and uh, go and try to retrieve the bullet after it's out of my mouth. I've been told we'd be surprised if we're Presbyterians will be with us in glory. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think there'll be a lot. That's probably, that's what there'll be a lot there. Well, let me close this in prayer. Thank you for your attention. Lord, thank you for uh, a chance to just kind of go quickly through this. As I said, we skipped through it. We touched down here and there. There's a lot unexplained. There's a lot we didn't read. It's just impossible to do. But I pray that this sets the tone and the place for next week, looking at some of the issues that come up when this book is uh, looked at carefully and, and, uh, and trying to do so with a literal point of view in mind, understanding what's going on. So bless us for the, the time that we've had. If something was helpful here, may it stick in somebody's mind. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.